Well, hopefully by now you've had the opportunity to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians and you have your, your outline ready. And we're going to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're in our third week of, of studying this book as we've been traveling through. And one of the things that we've said each week is that it, Paul the Apostle had come to this town years before and he had established this particular church. And he was there about a year and a half and then he moves on and he hands the church over to another pastor and then he continues on his missionary journey. The church has gone through a couple of pastors through the years and and what's taken place inside the church is that a number of teachers have come in and uh, one of the things that Paul's been dealing with is that some of these teachers aren't just teachers but they're false teachers and they're bringing some strange teachings within the church. And sadly, the church has begun to listen to some of these teachers and one of the things that the the false teachers are saying is they are contradicting what Paul had taught and they're questioning Paul's ministry, questioning his apostleship, questioning him as a reliable source of somebody to go to to understand what the gospel is all about. One particular group, and and what's taking place also, one of the things that as you, you read through you become sensitive to is that the early church unlike us, they didn't have one building that they could all come to and and have a church service. So what they would do is that they would meet in a number of different homes. And in those homes, each each home, we might call that a home church, each one would take kind of of its own flavor. And so uh, certain teachers would come in and they would have personalities that would be a little bit stronger than others. And all of a sudden they would find themselves as the teacher in this home group. Well, because of that, one of the groups that we're going to be looking at today, they were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were the ones who would come in from a very, very strong Jewish background. And they would say, it's great that you've met Jesus. It's great that you're following him. But if you want to be really spiritual, the way that you become really spiritual is that now you have to follow the Old Testament law. And we'll talk about that. Now in other groups, and we'll deal with those probably in the weeks to come, there were some who had representatives from some of the local philosophies coming in, and they were teaching strange things. So Paul is going to deal with a number of these things as we travel through. One of the things that we've shared about is that Paul has been, because of these false teachers, alienated from this church. So what he did, as our story picks up today, he sent his protege, a young minister named Titus, to go to Corinth and uh, get things back on track. But one of the things that's taken place is that he expected Titus to go there, get things on track, and then come back, but nobody has heard from Titus and time is passing. Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, and here's what it says. Now, when I came to Troas, you want to underline Troas, for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, that is, uh, some of your translations will say, saying my goodbyes, I went on to Macedonia. He wants to go find Titus, and he's concerned about his welfare. Let me go ahead and put a slide up on the screen just to give you some ideas to what this looks like. If you were to go to the middle of the screen down at the bottom, that's Greece, and you can see the town of Corinth. Does everybody see Corinth? Okay, now Paul was there, and and he starts the church. He's there for 18 months, and he goes on. Years have passed, and if you go to the right, you go back to what's called Asia then. Today we would call it modern-day Turkey. And as you travel up the coast there on the Aegean Sea, you come to the town of Troas. Does everybody see that? 
So Paul says, I came to Troas, and I, I was expecting Titus to, uh, to come back, and, and he doesn't. So Paul is so uh, out of sorts because he doesn't know what happened to Titus. So he leaves, and he heads up to the north, and he travels around, and he comes to Macedonia. Does everybody see Macedonia? So the reason that's so important is in those days they didn't have email phones, they couldn't Skype, and so you you couldn't get information readily. So Paul doesn't know what's going on, so he makes this long trip. But some of these trips literally could take months to to actually get there. Apparently he has found Titus, and so we're going to pick it up in verse 14, and it says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now some of your Bibles will say in triumphal procession. How many of your Bibles say triumphal procession? Good. You underline that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's a great translation. And manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we, I've underlined that, are a fragrance of Christ. You want to underline that. To God, to those who are being saved, and we're also a fragrance among those who are perishing. So saved, and we're also a fragrance to those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? And he'll talk about that in, in the next, next chapter. So in some of your Bibles it says that, he, that God always leads us to triumph. And uh, that's certainly good. Certainly He does that. The, um, and many of you have noticed that, that that's not always without a great deal of difficulty. Has that been your, your experience? So sometimes it's triumph, but it's it just, you know, you, you, you've been through it by the time you get there. I personally like the New International Version of this because it brings out something which I think is more accurate and uh, something that we tend to miss. I put it there in your outline and it says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, underline that, in Christ, and, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Well, the reason I, I like that translation is if you get out a, a Bible dictionary and you look up that word in the original language, the word triumphal procession, uh, there in your outline, I won't try to pronounce it, but you can see the Greek word. It, it means to lead in triumph, certainly, but it's used of a conqueror with reference to the vanquished. And you want to underline that. So what's going on? This is one of those terms that was very common in the Roman Empire, and, and so they would understand it as I'm going to share it with you today. In that time, if a Roman general were to go out and engage in a battle, and there's a great victory, a great victory being that they had, they had killed about 5,000 of the enemy and captured the enemy, then typically what would happen is they would bring the enemy that they've captured back to Rome, and they would have what they called a triumphal procession. We might call it a victory parade. And, and the way that this parade went would be that, that you would have in the front of the parade, you'd have the general and the main officers. And then behind them there'd be some other soldiers. And then beyond that there would be the captured enemy, the captured soldiers. And they would bring those captured soldiers back, and you can look all this up, in the most humiliating way that they could think of. So they would bring them back. Now as they did that, when, when the, the procession would head to the, to the uh, ultimately there to the Colosseum or, or to the arena, those who were captured, they understood that when they got to that Colosseum, they would be, they, typically they're fed to the animals. And so they, they realized that they were about to die. Now, the other ones, they were part of the victory parade. So you have two groups in there. 
The way that this victory parade would go through the city is that because Rome was very pagan, they would have the pagan priests out, and the pagan priests would stand along the side of the parade, marching with them, and they would have these uh, incense uh, canters that they would swing like, like so. If you've ever been to a Greek Orthodox church, you've been to a Catholic church, you've probably seen this. And, and so there's that aroma. So they would walk by. Now, you have the same aroma, but it means two very, very different things. Same aroma, same fragrance, but it means two very, very different things depending on who you are in the procession. You see, if you are part of the victory side of the procession, you, procession, you, you, you won the battle, then it's the sweet smell of victory as you go. Make sense? But if you're on the other side and you're smelling that and you're one of the ones who've been captured, to you it is the smell of death because they, you knew exactly where you were going to be. And the pagans viewed you being captured, uh, them killing you would be a sacrifice to their God, that their God had given that to you, and then you'd sacrifice those people to, to the God. So as that takes place, you have the same fragrance, but you have two very, very different responses to the same fragrance. So let me pick it up in verse 15 again. In verse 15 he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to the other the aroma from life to life, life to life. So go ahead and write this down. We are the fragrance of Christ to those being, to those being saved we smell like life. We're refreshing. And, and so uh, somebody shows up at church, they don't have a background uh, with the Lord, and, and they show up and all of a sudden they, they encounter God's spirit, they, they encounter God's word, something about us, and it smells like life to them, and they embrace, and it, it means something to them. So to those who are being saved, we, you and I, we, we are the fragrance of Christ, we smell like life. On the other hand, uh, write this down, but to those who are perishing, we stink. Write that down. Literally is what it means. So, you know, we smell like death to them. So we might write down, if we had more room on the outline, we might write, we, uh, we stink like death. We are offensive to those who are not being saved. Well, it's the same fragrance. It's the same Christ, but there's two very, very different groups. And that's important for you and I to understand. Jesus is always the dividing line. He's the dividing line. Jesus says, I don't come to bring peace, but I, I, I come to bring a sword. He doesn't mean to hack people, but he means there's going to be a division, those who are with him and those who are against him. So in the New Testament, you find there's one side, a group, they encounter Jesus, and to him, or to them, he smells like life. So they want to be with him. They, they don't care what it costs. They don't care what the outcome is, who rejects them. They want to be with him, even if it costs them their life. He smells like life to them. Then there's another group in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and for the past 2,000 years, they encounter Christ and uh, he doesn't smell like life to them. He smells like death. He's offensive to them to the point where they want to kill him. And uh, ultimately, you know how that, that goes down. And then after that, that takes place, now they want to kill anybody or anything that's associated with him. Does that make sense? And so for some, it's to life. Some, it's to death. It's the same Jesus. It's the same Jesus. But the response just reveals who they are in the procession. And uh, as, as you know, without going into detail, we're in the zoning process here at, at Calvary. And some of you have seen some of the things that have been posted about uh, 
us and, and, uh, and just, you just have to know that to some we are life, but to some we smell like death and, and uh, there's nothing that we can do to change that. We always want to operate in grace and love and do our very, very best. But uh, remember, they wanted to kill Jesus and, and they did and then they wanted to kill everybody associated with him. There in your outline, and, and even before I say that, let me just say that one of the things that you'll see in church is that, in, in the church world, is that there is this movement to try to be, to smell less offensive, less like death to those who are perishing. And uh, you can only go so far with that, but you still smell like death to those who are perishing. And uh, so I, I would say we never want to try to make ourselves more smell more smell worse than, than we, we do to those who are perishing. But the realization, as he says here, to some we are going to smell like life and to others we're going to smell like death. And, and it's got to be a work of the Spirit that changes that in somebody's life, not our best arguments. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, there in your outline, Jesus said it like this. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So never be surprised when the world hates you. But if there's not an aspect of the world that doesn't hate you, you need to look at that. You need to look at that because whatever God's doing in your life, you don't smell like death to those who are perishing. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Verse 17, he says now, uh, verse 17, he says, for we are not like many. Now I want you to underline like many. All of your Bibles have the words like many. Peddling, my translation says, some of your would, would say, um, um, some of your words say, what does it say? Corrupting or something like that. Peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, let me read that again. We are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So Paul says, as a minister, if I'm a true minister, you're going to know because I've been sent by God. He says, as those sent by God, you want to write this, write that down. And uh, we operate in sincerity in, in everything we do. Next week we're going to talk about, as Paul continues this thought, he's going to say that we don't, do, uh, we don't use a lot of hype is the idea. We'll talk about that next week. Now, if uh, your Bible says corrupting, it can be translated as peddling or corrupting. If it's corrupting, then those who are coming into the church were corrupting the Word of God by trying to make it smell better to those who were, being, who were perishing. And it never works. On the other hand, the, the way that I understand this is the word pedal there appears to be more uh, accurate in, in the translation. But I wanted you to write down something that we underlined in that verse. Verse 17, he says, for we are not, and it says, like many. Do you see that? So there in that little space, write like many. Because Paul's idea is that this is going to be very, very widespread, like many peddling the word of God. And the word peddling there in the original language means to be a retailer or to peddle. Anytime there is the true gospel, there will always be a counterfeit gospel that comes along. And, and so a retailer, when you look at a retailer, a retailer is somebody who looks out over all the possible people that he can reach and he says, what can I sell these people? What is it that these people will buy? I find out what they will buy and I sell them that. And Paul says, that's not what we do. We didn't look at you to find out what you would buy and decided to sell you that. We came in and we told you the truth, whether you buy it or not, is, is the idea. Make sense? 
Okay, um, so how are these false teachers coming into the church? Well, chapter 3, verse 1, it just continues, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some, apparently the false teachers coming in, letters of commendation to you or from you? He says, no, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. So apparently those false teachers were coming into the church. They were bringing with them letters of commendation from other places. Uh, apparently uh, it's suggested that some other churches. And, and uh, Paul says, you know, they're coming in with that, but, but my work speaks for itself. You, you guys are saved because he would say, I moved here and, and, and started this. So I, I didn't need a letter of commendation when I came to you because you were pagan. So who, you wouldn't have cared that I brought a letter from another church is the idea. But Paul says something here. We'll just mention it. We'll keep moving on. But from Paul's perspective, ministry credentials aren't paper but fruit. And that comes from God's Spirit. They were coming in with papers. They were coming in with letters of commendation, but they had no fruit. Paul says, I didn't show up with a letter of commendation. I just showed up and started, and, and that's the fruit. There in your outline in verse 3, he says, the result of our ministry is the outcome, it's the fruit, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And then Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. And apparently, what they are producing there. In uh, Corinth, these false teachers is not something that Paul can endorse. And, uh, you know, we as ministers were terrible about that. And in our day, in those days, it was letters of commendation. In our day, it's uh, letters behind our name. So when ministers get together, one of the things they'll talk about is, well, what do, do you have a THD, an MDiv, a PhD, an MS, MA, MATS, whatever, whatever that is. And, and it's amazing to me, and I know you've heard me say this before, but it's always amazing to me that last week the guy was just so-and-so, but this week he's got his PhD, and now he's Dr. So-and-so. And, and uh, so he wants to be introduced as Dr. So-and-so, and if you don't introduce him as Dr. So-and-so, he corrects you and says, I'd like you to call me Dr. So-and-so. And so we do, we're, we're polite, and then they'll always turn to me and they'll say, and, and how shall we address you? And I know you've heard me say it before, I always say something like, well, I'll call you Dr. So-and-so, um, I don't have a doctoral degree, um, I have a master's degree, I'll call you doctor, you just call me master. And... Uh, <laughs> We'll get along just fine. So, hasn't really worked out for me, but <laughs> verse four, he says, now some of your Bibles will have the word adequate and some of your Bibles will have the word competence. And so however it's written, you go ahead and, uh, and underline that. He says, now such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate, some of your Bibles say competent, underline, in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy or competency is from God, who also made us adequate or competent as servants of a new, I want you to underline that word new, I want to talk about that, a new covenant, not of the letter, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In a moment, Paul's going to contrast the, the law that was given in the stone written by, you know, by Moses or from, given to Moses and versus the one that's done by the Spirit. So, but Paul says our, our competency, and I put it there in your outline, he's made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. They 
had people coming in who were showing them their letters of recommendation in the same way that we might add up degrees and things of that nature. But one of the things, and you've heard this before, so write this down, God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. He equips the called. So when God calls somebody, that equipping process begins. Studying is very, very important. It's all part of it, but uh, it's, it's more important that, that God has equipped you. But I wanted you to underline that word new. And that, that word new, when he talks about the new covenant, is a very unique word. There in your outline, I won't try to pronounce it in the Greek, but it means denotes new of that which is unaccustomed or unused. Now underline this. Not new in time or recent, but new as it to form or quality of different nature. Paul is going to talk about the Old Testament, which was written in stone, and it's going to be very, very different than the New Testament, which is written in our heart, to the point where it's of a completely different nature. So the new is not just the one that came next, it's not just the one that's an improvement, it's something completely different. So he's going to talk about that. Now remember that this, there are groups of people coming into the church saying if you're going to be spiritual you've got to keep the Old Testament law. So as Paul talks about this you want to be sensitive to the way that he refers to the Old Testament law versus the New Testament, especially what's taking place in this particular church. We're going to pick it up in verse 7 and he calls it the ministry, but if the ministry of, what's that word? Death. So it doesn't start off very positive. Did you notice that? The ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, that is Moses receives the law and it comes down from the mountain and it's all written in stones. Came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 8, he goes, but how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to, and underline ministry of the Spirit, fail to be even more with glory? Verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much uh, more does the ministry of righteousness. The old one's one of condemnation, this one's one of righteousness. Verse 10, For if indeed what had glory, underline that, has no glory, underline that, because the glory that surpasses it. We'll talk about that. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So there's a couple of things here. First of all, you you saw how negatively he spoke about one one, uh, covenant, the Old Testament covenant, versus the new. So um, the first thing that we notice, and I want you to write this down, verse 7, he says, but if the ministry of death engraved in letters, uh, engraved in stones, uh, came with glory so, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. So go ahead and write this down. One of the first things that we see is that the old covenant was written in stone, it calls it the ministry of death, so it brought death, and the reason was is because nobody could keep it. Write that down. In the Old Covenant, when God gave that, there were, there were hundreds of rules. And so if you wanted to, to, to keep the Old Testament law, you were always in a battle as to how to, how, how to do that. For instance, uh, you find that many of the rules that you had to keep would be in direct conflict with another rule. So you always had to decide which rule am I going to keep. But to keep one means I'm going to break another. How many of you have heard the story of the Good Samaritan? 
It's a, it's a great story. We've all heard it. One of the things that we forget because uh, we come from kind of a you know, Western Protestant background, what's going on in that story? Remember the, the, the part of that story where a man's beat up on the side of the road and uh, the priest comes walking along and he sees the man beat up on the side of the road and he steps over him. We all look at him and go, bad priest, bad priest. Well, that might not be the case. You see, the priest had a couple of laws that he had to keep. One law was that he needed to be ceremonially clean so that he could serve God. If you weren't ceremonially clean, there was a whole process that you had to go through to become clean before God again. One of the rules was that you couldn't touch blood or touch anybody that was bloody. So the priest, he might have wanted to help the man, but he realized that if I reach down and I help the man, all of a sudden I've broken the law of God, I'm now ceremonially clean. Now on the other hand, there you have this law that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if I keep this one and I stay ceremonially clean, uh, and I, at the same time I'm going to be breaking the law that says love your neighbor. If I love my neighbor, then I'm going to break the law that says that I need to stay ceremonially clean because I'm a priest. Does that make sense? So you have these laws. So for instance, you see that your neighbor's cart, his ox cart has fallen over on him on, on the Sabbath. Here it is on, on, on a Saturday. So you look at him and you want to run over and help him, but you realize if I touch the cart and I move that, that's working. That's going to break the law of the Sabbath. If I don't do that, then I'm going to be breaking the law of not loving my neighbor as myself. So to keep one meant you broke the other. And so what that did is it created this whole feeling of condemnation because you were always wrong no matter what you did. Make sense? So that brings us to verse 9. And notice in verse 9 he says, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness. So no matter what you did under the old covenant, if you kept one, you're probably breaking another one with the very, very best intentions. Verse 11 I'm going to read on the outline, and it says, if, that, if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts, underline lasts, fading and lasts. So from the very beginning, Paul reminds, and he says the old covenant was made, was made to fade, you want to write that down, but the new covenant was made to last. The, the old covenant was made to, at a certain point, end, the new covenant was made to last forever. Verse 10, he says, for indeed what had glory, in this case has not some or a little, he says no glory. Uh, the idea is it, it's not helping us right now because of, the surpassing, uh, because of the glory that surpasses it. That is the new covenant. The idea is that you can't compare the new covenant with the old covenant. Now verse 12 and 13, he says, therefore having such a hope we use great boldness of speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So here in, in, in this passage, and it's all moving somewhere, hopefully I don't put you to sleep too fast, but in this passage, by the way, first of all I put uh, from the King James Version there in your outline uh, this verse and it says, seeing then what we have such a hope we use great plainness of speech. Does everybody see that? And uh, Paul, Paul says when we do ministry we just use plainness of speech. We don't hype it up. Uh, it can translate either way. When Moses, he, he alludes to this, 
the story there in Exodus 34, and I put the address there. You can look that up. When Moses went up to the mountain and he got the law from God, he spent time in God's presence, and they described his face as glowing when he came down. So it comes down with the law, but as he's away from God's presence for a while, the, the shine begins to go away. And uh, so he'd go back up onto the mountain, they would come back, but it's kind of like you always had to go back and get recharged. And so when Moses would come down, he'd cover his face because he didn't want the people to see that it was just fading away. The idea is that what God has given to us does not fade away like what Moses had. And the reason that's so important is this is what the people in Corinth were going back to. And so as they're going back to that, Paul said, why would you want to go back to that? To it, which is the, the idea. Verses 14 and 15. By the way, did that, did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, verses 14 and 15. He says, but their minds in, in the Old Testament were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Now, again, the Corinthian church came from a pagan background. They had no Jewish background whatsoever. People were coming inside the church. They're saying, well, now that you're saved, that's great, you got Jesus, but now you got to really keep the Old Testament law. Paul has just gone through the whole thing saying, if it has no glory, it only leaves you condemned. And uh, even the people now, when they read that, who are trying to keep the law, as they read that, it's like a veil is over their face. And, and so why would you want to go back to the very thing that those who read that, they still can't find Jesus, which is true, which is true. Uh, there are certain passages that you and I would read, and as we read those in the Old Testament, we'd say it's, it's absolutely talking about Jesus. But to the Jewish people who read that, for many of them, they read the same thing, and it's like a veil is over their eyes. And Paul says it, there's a veil in it, and it remains today. As I say that, I need to say two other things. One, uh, we don't go back to the Old Testament law to come under those rules but we always have a great appreciation and a great debt that we owe to the Jewish people for what it is that they have given to us as New Testament believers. For instance, there in your outline, Jesus says, for salvation is from the Jews. Does everybody see that? So there's a very, very special place in the heart of God for the Jewish people. Right now, the Bible teaches that there's this veil over many of their eyes. Most, not all, but most. And they can't see Jesus. You and I look at a passage and it's clearly talking about Jesus. There comes a day in the future when that veil will be lifted and the whole nation of Israel will see that Jesus really was the Messiah, he was the Christ. One of my favorite passages was written 500 years before Jesus was even born. I put it there in your outline and it talks about this end times event that's going to take place and I want you to notice a few of the nuances here. It's in Zechariah, again, 500 years before Jesus is born. And he says, I will pour out on the house of David, that would be the nation of Israel, we know that, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, very, very specific, the spirit of grace, which is a very interesting word. You don't get that word a whole lot in the Old Testament. And of supplication. And then you notice it says, they will look upon me, and there's two letters there I'll come back to, 
whom they have, and what's that word? Pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The idea is that when Jesus comes back again, he says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. This was written 500 B.C. The way that people were executed 500 B.C. in Israel was through the process of stoning. Crucifixion, when this is written, won't be invented for another 200 years. So this would be very perplexing to the Jewish people as they read this 500 years before Jesus is born. Do you find that interesting? What I find even more interesting in this, and I put two letters there, the A and the Z. Does everybody see that? They will look upon me whom they have pierced. There's something in the original manuscripts that does not translate into the English. So I'm going to put an interlinear uh, passage here on, on the screen. An interlinear Bible is one that gives you the Hebrew or the Greek, depending on the New Testament or Old Testament, and then it gives you the word. Now, one of the things you need to know is that all languages point to Israel. So if you are to the east of Israel, all the languages are read from the right to the left. So Hebrew, by the way, is written from right to the left, Arabic, and all the, all the languages that are to the east. Now, to the west of Israel, all the languages are written from the left to the right. So wherever you are, they all point to Israel. I just find that interesting. I don't know what to do with that, but it is interesting. So we're going to read this from the Hebrew, from the left to the right. I think, no, from the, the right to the left. Okay, just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> I knew that. So, okay, so, so that same verse, he says, to Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me and then you see that circle there, whom they have pierced. Everybody see that? So you go, what, what's that word there that's circled there? What's well, two letters, isn't it? It's two letters. Um, and those two letters, which are on top, are in Hebrew, they're called the Aleph and the Tav. The Aleph and the Tav are the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The reason I put the A and the Z in ours is because that would be in English. If this was written in Greek, it would say the alpha and the omega, and it means the first and the last. But it's just two letters, and it doesn't make a word, so it doesn't translate. And it's in every Hebrew manuscript. So this is saying, literally, they shall look upon me, the alpha, the omega, the aleph, the tav, the first, the last, the A, the Z, whom they have pierced. Isn't that interesting? And it's there. It's not in our English translations, but it's in every interlinear. So you can look that up sometime. So um, there will come a day when they will say, yes, Jesus is, is, is the one. Verse 17, we've got to kind of move. So he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And my translation says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's not the rules and rituals and regulations uh, attached. There's, there's liberty. As a matter of fact, it really comes down to two. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that. Work, work on that. And uh, it says, so where, where the Lord is, now the Lord, my translation says, now the Lord is the Spirit. Very quickly, if you've ever heard the term, the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the word Trinity is not in your Bible. 
But you read these passages, like in Isaiah, and it says, for unto us a son will be given, a child, you know, and it goes on to say, he will be, uh, the, the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be, and it says, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. So the child that would be born would be the mighty God, everlasting Father. So from that we get that Jesus, when he would be born, he would be God in the flesh. Thomas comes up to him and says, put, you know, I'm going to put my hand in your, your side and in your hand, you know, in, in your hand. And Jesus says, uh, you know, so now you get this. And, and Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And, and so he declares that Jesus is God. And so we get that there's God the Father, God the Son. And then you come to passages like this. It says, the Lord is the Spirit. And uh, you get God the Holy Spirit. So that's where that comes from. Won't spend time on that. We'll move on. Verse 18, we close with this. We only have about a minute or so. And uh, it's, it says, I'm going to read it there on your outline. And it closes this passage by saying, and we, speaking of us believers, who with unveiled faces all reflect, some of your translations will say beholding, the Lord's glory, and then I want you to underline, are being transformed. And that word transformed in the original language is the word metamorpho. From where we get, you can't get it wrong, the English word that we get from that is the word metamorphosis. So you're going to start one way and you're going to wind up very, very different. Start off as a caterpillar, you're going to wind up as a butterfly. You know, it's a, it's a completely different thing. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. He says, but we're being transformed into his likeness, his likeness with ever increasing glory. Once again, it says, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Once again, this God's spirit is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now, when you read that, what that tells us, and write this down, that the goal of this new covenant, not the one that was written in stone, is to transform us into the likeness of Christ through His Spirit, through His Spirit. So this transformation is going to take place through His Spirit. How does that take place? What's the process? Well, if you read this from the New American Standard, I think it just brings it out a little bit clearer. It says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, there in your outline, are being transformed. So there's this beholding Him as in a mirror. Now, the beholding, when you're beholding something as in a mirror, the idea is that you're looking intently. You're looking intently. How many of you have teenagers? Okay. How many of you were teenagers? So we, we, years ago we said, let's have babies, but nobody told us that they turn into teenagers. So, so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. They're metamorphosizing. But one of the things I've noticed is here it says, there in your outline, it says, beholding as in a mirror, as in a mirror. One of the things I've noticed about my teenagers is they cannot walk by a mirror. They're just like, they're like mesmerized. It's like they're just staring and staring at themselves in and is it just my kids or some other, some of you? Okay, good. So my kids aren't that weird. They're okay. So they just behold. Now here's the idea. The way that you are metamorphosized to become more like Christ is you are literally, and I want you to, to write this down. How do I change? It's by spending time with the Lord. You're looking at him. You're, you're, you're enamored with him. Just like looking in a mirror, you can't turn away. It's spending time with the Lord. This is where many people miss it. They become believers, they, but, but there's never been that metamorphosis, that transformation. 
And the reason being is they're nice people, they come to church, but they don't spend time with him. It's that beholding as in a mirror. Like you just can't look away. You want to just keep looking, looking. You're spending time with him. And it's in that through his spirit, he begins to change you from the inside out. The idea of metamorphosis means that it's a process. I didn't put that on your outline, but you might want to write that word down, process. So to evaluate my life, I simply need to do this. I need to ask myself, am I being transformed? Am I being transformed? Am I different than I was a year ago? Am I, am I different than I was 10 years ago? Not that I'm nicer, have more information, but is that transformation taking place? That transformation comes from beholding, that spending time with him. And, and if, if you're not being transformed, you need to look at that because you don't want your whole Christian experience to be that you got more information, you're a nice person. There, there's more that God wants to do. We're being transformed into his likeness. Now, there's one thing I can tell you that the more you become transformed into his likeness, it's probably going to mean something. I want you to write this down. This change might make me stink more. Because what you'll find is the more you become like Christ, the more it's going to irritate uh, those who are not. Well, let's go ahead and and, uh, close in prayer. And then we're going to pick it up next week. Next week is 4th of July, but I think I'm going to continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to remember that to some we will smell like life, but to some we will smell like death. And, and, and we pray that to those we smell like death, that you would give us grace and love and help us to always respond in, in a way that reflects you. But we pray, God, that for some of those who right now we smell like death, that you would bring them to the place where we smell like life and that their, their experience would be very, very different. Use us to reach those around us. And then, Father, for those of us who we smell like life to, we pray, God, that you would bring those into your kingdom. Keep us till we meet again. Help us to represent you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.